Hello folks, welcome to the weekly Manchester United podcast. I am your host, Phil Brand. I'm going to try and do a podcast here on my own, so forgive me if this is a bit rough to listen to. This is actually a second version of a podcast I recorded earlier that I wasn't particularly happy with, so I deleted it. Uh, primarily because it veered into topics that I'm really not comfortable talking about, that I don't think I even should be talking about live, um, and I'm not qualified to talk about, and that is Mason Greenwood. Um, it's hard to, to address this when you're doing it live. Um, upon completing that podcast, I felt probably wasn't appropriate to broadcast that. I will repeat what I said, I have no problems with that, but... Um, I don't think it's something that I really should be talking about. I, I didn't ask the question, it was Colin, I'm not blaming him. But, um, you know, I, I, I just don't feel comfortable talking about it because for so many other reasons than one, who am I to even speak about this? I'm just, a, a you know, the guy that records football podcasts, I'm a United fan, I'm not qualified to talk about this. And... Um, I didn't want that out there on my Twitter feed. The people that watch the podcast live are far greater in number than those who download the podcast. Um, I didn't want that going out to 89,000 people. I just don't think it's appropriate. And uh, it's obviously a highly sensitive topic. Uh, I will talk about the United Takeover and what I know. Uh, a lot is happening right now. Um, I will talk a bit about my view on Leeds and uh, what I thought about that game. A couple of all United topics um, and uh, hopefully this isn't too painful to listen to for me doing it on my own. I want to thank everybody for downloading the podcast. I'm actually not feeling too well today. So hopefully I can get through this. Um, if you know me all week actually. Um, but uh, I will start with the Leeds game. Obviously an extremely pleasing three points. I want to qualify a couple of comments. I, I also said online about the rivalry um, because it, it certainly sparked debate. Uh, obviously disappointing in midweek to draw with Leeds. In some sense, it was actually quite interesting. The Twitter was down immediately after that game. I was getting on a plane, flying back from Atlanta, and God knows how I didn't get arrested in the airport watching the United game. I got some unbelievably strange looks whenever Sancho scored and I'm going buck mad across the airport. A lady next to me had a computer and nearly filled her pants, nearly threw it out of her lap whenever I went mad. Uh, Sancho scoring, um, obviously because you know, I thought at that stage United would come back and win the game, but also how great was it to see Jadon Sancho come back and score a goal and how much it meant to him. To see the smile on Ten Hag's face, to see the smile on Sancho's face, his teammates, you know, what you see inside that football club is every player fighting for themselves, fighting for a football team, fighting for a club. Something that was so lacking last season. And I think that something also has happened where I feel it's a bit unfair is some of the criticism that's still being levelled at Ralph Ranick. Um, and you occasionally see this in the media, and I think it's really shallow in my opinion. One of Ranick's legacy is Ten Hag. I mean... <clears throat> It was well known that he was part of the process in hiring Ten Hag. At that time, it was 50-50 between Ten Hag and Pochettino. Is there anyone that thinks he needed to hire Pochettino? He was also very, very honest in his assessment of what United needed. And if you looked at Ten Hag's first two games, they were very Ranicky, right? I mean, that open-heart surgery that Ranick told United to do really didn't start happening until after Brantford. 
Ranić wasn't allowed to sign players. He was trying to breathe life into a corpse, into a football club that had already abandoned any us, any any intention of you know accomplishing anything. They had no belief it was a football club that was in serious conflict internally. I don't think even if Tim Hogg had come in last January, he could have done much better. The players knew he wasn't a permanent manager and weren't playing for him. There was also issues with you know Ranić digging him out in press conferences. They didn't feel that was fair because they felt that the club were responsible for a lot of why they were doing what they were doing and the club weren't taking legitimate criticism, which I understand in a way. <clears throat> but the Leeds game, I think, uh, was something that we've seen all season. Every time Eric Ten Hag has been presented with a problem, he always comes up with a solution. And this is one of the things that I really, really like about Ten Hag. Every time United have had a blip, He's fixed it the following week. And even when United win games, he's always approached that like they've lost. It's very easy sometimes you get a goal in the last minute, you win a game, and you can completely overlook the last 89 and all the things that went wrong. Ten Hag doesn't do that. There's no complacency, even in victory. You know, and I, I love... He's very measured in press conferences. And I love how he, he, he is, uh, you know never gets carried away with defeat, never gets carried away with victory. I can't remember feeling this positive towards the United manager ever, uh, since Ferguson, really. You know, I was certainly moments during Solskjaer where it felt amazing, where you were excited about where the club was going, but I never felt the same trust. I never felt like it was built on the solid foundations where, you know, when Ten Hag was out and signs right Veghorst, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't by any means say he's been exceptional. He's been all right. I trusted Ten Hag completely. I'm not sure I would have given that same trust to Solskjaer. If he, and I love Dolly. You know, I know certain aspects of the fan base didn't, but I did. Um, not perfect, and I accepted by the end of his tenure it was time for him to go. But um, I think with Ten Hag, I completely trust him. And I do believe had he had, had a bigger budget in January, it wouldn't have been Vic Horst, it would have been someone different. But he's made the best of what he has. So I think he's done an exceptional job. Uh, he obviously played Maguire at the weekend because United did not want to go into that Barcelona game. Playing Maguire, having not played at all. He needed that 90 minutes. And look, <clears throat> Maguire was obviously bought by Solskjaer to play in a counter-attacking team, a team that sits deep, hits you on the break. And when he was playing in that Solskjaer team, he was doing all right. It was certainly a lot better than the player we saw last season. And in Maguire's defence, United was a really hard team to look good in last season, as Rashford has shown, and others. So there's some mitigation to his form last season, which of course partly is mental. I mean, we've accepted that Sancho and Rashford and others, Luke Shaw, are in a completely different mental space. And therefore, you're getting the best out of them. I mean, there's been times where I've written Luke Shaw off at United and thought, I've seen the best of Luke Shaw, and he doesn't get in my United team. But I would say, with Maguire, I don't think he gets in Ten Hag's best 11, and I think he knows that. He is a very good player in the right team. But part of me wonders if Harry Maguire's accepted that he's not going to be a starter for Man United. And if he's not a starter for Man United, maybe it's time to look elsewhere. I think he will go at the end of the season. 
Because I think when Varane and Martinez is fit, he won't get in that team. And even when Martinez isn't fit, because he's really in competition with Varane, um, Luke Shaw plays because, uh, of course, Ten Hag wants that left-footed centre-back. I think for Maguire, given the fact you know he's been a captain, given the fact that you know, he's an England international, I think he will go <clears throat> at the end of the season. There was a certain moment in that Leeds game that I thought was pretty telling. Um, that really, for me, showed why Harry Maguire can't play in an Eric Ten Hag team that plays in a high, plays a high line, and that was you saw when he got the ball at the top of the or the halfway line. I think it was Somerville was coming in behind him, and he actually could see Somerville coming over his shoulder. Still got caught out with the ball just because his skill set's not suited to play a high line. And when Martinez came on in the game yesterday, you saw United's passing range completely open up, completely changed. They put in some lovely balls. Uh, and that was actually a part of Martinez's game I don't think I've given enough credit on. Um, just such an unbelievable signing. Um, but uh, I don't want to criticise Maguire. I'm just saying that I remember when Solskjaer took over, it was obvious to me that Lukaku wouldn't fit the way Solskjaer played. Not that Lukaku was the bad player. I know certain people have said this, said that. But he did go to Inter Milan and, and, and you know, he has scored goals pretty much wherever he's been with the exception of Chelsea, really, and, and uh, towards the end of his career, uh, towards the last year or two. But prior to that, I mean, Lukaku's goal scoring record was quite good. But it was obvious that he didn't suit the way uh, Solskjaer wanted to play and that he would be one of the casualties of that. So, um, I just think that's where Maguire finds himself as United have evolved. They've evolved past the player that he is and they're no longer suited to the way he is, his his skill set. But I still think he'd be a really good signing for someone like Everton or something like that there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, doesn't deserve a lot of the criticism that's come his way. You know, the, some of the criticism is legit, but I think it definitely veers over into abuse. And that's going to bring me to Alejandro Garnacho's comments. And this is another reason why I didn't want to broadcast the podcast earlier because I wasn't measured enough in some of my criticism towards an individual that criticised Alejandro Garnacho, and I'm not comfortable with that. Um, as I was saying, you know, the people that listen to the podcast on my Twitter feed um, are a lot more than those who download it. And I didn't want that out there circulating with certain comments that I wasn't particularly happy about because I want to be a little bit more measured with that. Um, <clears throat> so really, really happy with the Leeds game yesterday. Also really happy with the Alejandro Ganacho goal, primarily as a consequence. First of all, the kid's a fantastic talent, and it's great to see the fact that United are on the verge of extending his contract. Uh, we're very, very lucky to have an 18-year-old come into the football club and change games when he comes on. I mean, that goal reminded me a bit of his goal against Fulham. Late in the game, brilliant finish, composure, beyond his years, talent, he's been criticised. It would have been very easy for that to get inside his head. But to show the maturity, to to block that out, to to finish like that, I think speaks volumes to the kids. People say attitude problem. You know, because Lee Sharp and Ryan Giggs have an attitude problem when Fergie showed up at the house. You know, Ryan Giggs done some abhorrent things. You know, it's... We all remember what it was like to be a team, right? I mean, I think you have to realise that these are kids and they're not, you know, they, they, just because they play for United and they're, you know, it doesn't mean they stop becoming human. It doesn't mean that they don't do kid things. You know, unfortunately in the era of social media, every mistake these kids made is broadcast. 
on the past. Lee Sharp, Brian Giggs, you know, you heard about that years later. You know, it, it wasn't 24-7 coverage. And so they were allowed to make mistakes in a way that young kids aren't today. Um, I put out a tweet, it was an emotional tweet, I'll be honest. For 80%, or maybe 80 minutes of that Leeds game, I was angry. For two reasons. One, um, it was a needly game. A lot of booting between the two clubs, a lot of, um, probably a bit emotionally immature sometimes, but uh, I was, uh, you know, it was it was one of those games and it was blood and thunder. And so I desperately wanted the Nate to win it. You know, you could hear the Munich chants. United fans weren't perfect either, it has to be said, with the Istanbul chants. I really wish that didn't happen in football. There's a way to fanatically support your football club without delving into that. <clears throat> I've never liked the Hillsborough chance. I've never liked anything like that. Um, to me, I think that goes too far. You know, because there's genuinely people that have died in these incidents. There's, there's family members that have to listen to this. I just think it's so uns insensitive and it's not necessary. Um, you needed her, what, a week after, a week out, a week and a half out from, from the Munich Memorial, um, you know, which no doubt still affects people. Um, there's family members and what have you that have to listen to this, and it's just totally unacceptable. Um, Leeds will have family members that will have to listen to United fans think about Istanbul. So insensitive. I can't imagine how it must feel to be a family member to listen to that. <clears throat> anyway, I really want United to win this game. And uh, also because maybe there's a 10% hope that United are in a title race. And maybe I'm being delusional. I probably am. Football fans are like that. As, as that old saying goes, it's the hope that kills you, isn't it? Um, but and you want United to win every game, but I'm not going to lie and say that it didn't have maybe a quarter of an eye on the results. Watching Arsenal wobble a bit, okay, they lost against Everton in midweek. I knew that'd be a hard game after Sean Dyche got a point, didn't he? Going, mm. We've all been sitting there going, are Arsenal for real? Are Arsenal for real? We're waiting on the collapse. I think we'll find a lot out on Wednesday when they play City. But, you know, I'm well, wobbling just maybe. And maybe at this point City are the more likely team to put a run together and win the league. I don't know. United still have depth issues, as we can see when Casemiro doesn't play, Eriksen doesn't play, the contrast is massive. Um, really big, although I thought Sabitzer done really, really well, adjusted to the pace. That can't have been an easy game for Sabitzer. You know, that, and I remember um, Varane's debut, I think it was, against Wolves away. United 1-1-0, I think it was. Um, and I'm coming off from puffing his cheeks. And the intensity and the pace of that game was an unbelievable. I mean, that is, if you go back to Ranyak talking about uh, Burnley, he was at the Burnley game last season, he goes, they'd never been in the bottom three in the, in, in the Bundesliga. Um, I think the intensity of the Premier League is something that is difficult to adjust to, especially in January. So Spitzer has come in and done really, really well to adjust to that game. I thought Fred showed enormous maturity as well and not getting sent off. I mean, we all have flashes of PSG. When he gets booked early in the game, especially in a game like that, you're going, Christ, don't get sent off. He talk about a grief for supposedly backing out of a 50-50 that I think he sort of had to back out of because if he slightly gets that wrong, the crowd goes nuts. And we saw in the Southampton game how easy it is to get sent off. I mean, if Ruben Neves to be believed about why Lamina was sent off, that is unbelievable. 
but that's how easy it is. And there's no consistency with refereeing. The referee in the Premier League right now is absolutely appalling. I kind of think the referees a bit because some of this is unnecessarily overcomplicated by people that don't or have never played the game, obviously. But, you know, Fred's walking a tightrope and if he gets sent off, you know, very, very plausible, you know, don't win that game because, you know, he was man on match, he was magnificent, um, really, really good, massive improvement over the game he played on Wednesday. And I made a comment, and I mean this, that some people, and I think I do think this is a consequence of social media and the hyperbole of social media and the fact that we live in an era where everything's the greatest of all time, where everything's the GOAT and everything's the best team ever. I mean, we had people talking about Liverpool being the best team in the history of the Premier League and City in the best history in the Premier League and, you know, the greatest of all time and all this nonsense. So everything is exaggerated and people make their minds up on a player based on a bad game. And they don't know the difference between a bad game and a bad player. And you have to know the difference. Um, Fred had a bad game on Wednesday. No question about it. He put it right the weekend. He was excellent. And that's how you deal with that. Not social media apologies. We haven't seen social media apologies in a long time. It's great. Um, instead, we see players... PR teams tweeting things like what well, Lissandro Martinez tweeting things about, you know, my great three points to bring home away fans are amazing. That's what you want to see. You know, I watched Pascal, I watched uh, Kimpembe at the weekend. Go to the PSG fans with the bullhorn and talk to them, you know, after getting beat again. That's what I want to see from players. If I don't want to see a, a, a structured message from their PR team. I don't want to see them leaking against each other. I want to see them take responsibility. So now we see the opposite and we see players. You know, young Garnacho putting up on Instagram this picture of him with his finger to his lips. You saw his brother tweet things about how painful it was to read some of the criticism. And look, I'm not saying that he shouldn't expect to be criticised. He plays for Manchester United. That comes with you know, the pendulum swings heavy both ways. When you're playing well, you get unbelievable praise, but when you're not, you're going to get criticism. That's just part of life. But I really felt that the comments that were labelled towards him were extremely disappointing um, about him being shit. Alejandro Granadio was not shit. Now, I'm not above the, the, uh, the odd ridiculous opinion myself. You know, emotional opinion, I've said things that I deeply regretted. You know, I've said things in the heat of the moment. Having access to a phone and Twitter in the heat of the moment, I've looked back on some of my tweets and went, Jesus Christ, what was I thinking? You know, how wrong was I? And you have to accept that when you have a large following, you're going to get criticism for opinions. You're going to reach a wide audience with different views on things. And not everyone's going to say, how great you are, mate. You know, and that's okay. It comes with territory. But I think anyone who's watched football will know 18-year-olds are inconsistent. And I didn't think Garnacho played that bad uh, on Wednesday, to be honest. But that is entirely commensurate with being a young player. And Manchester United are a football club that promotes youth. And anyone that's watched Ronaldo or Giggs or any young player for that matter at the football club will know they've had ups and downs, they've had bad games. And that comes with the territory. Eric Ten Hag is someone, of course, come, came from Ajax, familiar with bringing young players through a system and knows that this is part of what happens with a young player. And I just felt 
that it was really unfair on him to go after him like that. Um, some someone who probably should know better, and uh, he's taken a beating for it to be fair on social media, and maybe in some ways, the fact that everyone's talking about it, it's mission accomplished. Maybe I don't know, because that's. I would imagine the intent behind the comment. I do believe, I'm not saying this is specific to this individual, but there's in that arena people are coached to be controversial because it gets engagement, it gets interaction. Being measured with reviews doesn't. Good journalism is not sexy. Good journalism doesn't get clicks, retweets. Sometimes the truth isn't sexy. But again, we live in an era where everyone's competing for your attention. And the way to get that is to, to be extreme in your views. This is born out in our politics and everything else. Maybe the individual believes what he says. I don't know. But one of the things that Manchester United Football Club, synonymous with youth, our, fa our fans should be educated enough to know that you don't go after the 18-year-olds in that way. I mean, I wasn't comfortable when some fans went after Alanga. It's really early. Because, I, and I assume most of this is done by young kids. Because, you know, they're not aware yet of that culture. Um, but that wasn't done by a young kid. And I was really disappointed in it. It angered me, I'll be honest. Um, provoked a reaction to me earlier that I was uncomfortable with. And I uh, apologize for anyone listening to that. Because um, it wasn't measured. It was emotional. And um, I was wrong for the way I said it because, um, you know, I, I might have said things that uh, weren't fair. And I think this is a much more measured response to that. I was really disappointed in all of that. Um, we are lucky to have a player of that quality, of Alejandro Garnacho. Magnificent young player, a young kid that comes on and changes games. You know, you look at that Fulham game. I mean, the composure, the technique, that's what that goal reminded me at the weekend against Leeds of. You know, the saucy of that game, away. You know, fantastic young talent. You know, he so hard to mark his pace, running with the ball at pace, his finishing. I mean, imagine what this kid's going to turn out to be. His unbelievable potential. Such an exciting young player. And I'm really happy that you needed to have him. Uh, you know, probably make an argument that he's been better than Anthony this season. Um, Anthony, I still have tremendous confidence and will be a really, really good player. It does worry me a bit that he's a bit one-dimensional. I would say one-dimensional, one-footed. But um, he's still really young himself. And I you know, have complete confidence in him. I don't think it's fair to judge players this quickly. You know, the World Cup interrupted the season. If you look back to the pre-World Cup, Anthony was out for about a month. Um, only played a you know bit part role at the World Cup. Now he's injured again, and that it's hard to get momentum uh, and find your best form when you're constantly being interrupted by injuries. So I think um, maybe some of the criticism around him is a bit unfair. But again, this is a consequence of social media, where you know, and I'm as guilty of as anyone else of have to have an opinion on everything. Maybe you don't, <laughs> you know. So, um, but. Uh, we're talking about United in a tight race, which seems utterly inconceivable compared to what we had to deal with last season, which was um, 
the football club was on its knees. Uh, I think Brantford was the lowest ebb that I felt was needed for him in, in my adult life. Like, I, can't, I can't really remember. I remember certain really low moments in the early 90s, um, late 80s, you know, 1990 there. I remember some really low moments. Um, but, uh, you know, to, to, as I've said many times, you know, to perform an exorcism on this level on Manchester United and to, you know, ha have United back infuriating journalists whose sole reason for existence, it seems, or certain commentators, is to troll Manchester United fans for a reaction. <laughs> um, it's not, not the first time this has happened, but um, nothing, you know, when United were, were, were dreadful last season, even had Jurgen Klopp allegedly calling, wanting to call Gabby Agbon Lahore to criticise him for his, his comments about United, I doubt he'd do that now. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I think that where United are at right now is really, really encouraging. Um, and as I've said many times, it's always the next step that United have found difficult when they get close. How do you get over the line? How do you get to where you become a team where you can threaten the teams at the top? And and I do think United will get this right this time. Obviously, a lot's going to change at the football club over the next three to four months. Um, as I'm recording this, there's a lot coming out about the Patari stuff. Now, I've been getting information on United's takeover from one or two individuals that are extremely close to the process. Um, actually, I, had a wish, I wish I had to listen to them sooner. Uh, they tipped me off in July, I think it was, and I ignored it because I didn't think it was legit. And then they came back again, and sure enough, the information that they have been providing me uh, has been 100%. And I was given really solid information in December about the Qataris being interested in United, um, consulting with David Beckham on that. Um, I think James Ducker at the Telegraph has just put an article out about Beckham being approached by the Qataris. Um, he was obviously very conscious of the criticism that he got uh, for being an ambassador for the World Cup. Um, I don't know if he's going to be involved in a, in a bid process. They're saying that he's pushing back a bit on it now. Um, but um, if I had to be if I had to make a bet on who will end up owning United, I would say it will end up being the Qataris. But let me say a few things, a few words of caution. Um, I remember being with Woodward up in San Francisco, and we were talking about Di Maria going to PSG, and then he said to me, listen, there's just a misconception out there that they just throw money about. You know, they burn cash in front of things. Like, we had to negotiate really hard and squeeze every concession out of them. On the De Maria deal, they're hard negotiators. They're not what you think. And I'm sure they don't want to have their pants pulled down by a bunch of Westerners. So, I still believe they'll go to a price point that Jim Ratcliffe won't. I've always believed that. Um, Jim Ratcliffe is a sensible businessman who um, bought deserves exactly the same scrutiny as everyone else. Um, it's very easy to think Jim, local lad, he'll do all the right things. But look, Louis Edwards treated Martin, uh, treated Sir Matt Busby terribly. You know, United fans had issues with Martin Edwards. <clears throat> so um, I think whoever 
intends to own the football club should go through exactly the same scrutiny and be held to exactly the same standard and be very conscious of the fact that United fans will not be fooled again, once bitten, twice shy. And that they will demand some type of inclusivity, on the, uh, whether it's a serious representation of the fans on the board or in some capacity that can influence change where they're not being excluded. You know, what? one of the worst aspects of the Glazer ownership was the fact that there was zero communication and respect for fans. I mean, they couldn't even go to the Munich Memorial. You'd only one more to go to, lads. Could you not have shown up? But they've always had contempt for United and the football club and, and, and never really cared about its culture. And this is what's going to be really important. I mean, if you look at Chelsea, I remember when Van Hal bought uh, Falcao and Di Maria. Ollie Holt was out with an article saying United had completely lost their identity because they were starting to buy at the top of the market. And one of the only times they'd done it. I haven't seen those same articles about Chelsea. Um, but I don't want that at United. I don't want a situation at United where... You know, Chelsea spent more money in January than the rest of Italy, Spain, Germany, France combined. I mean, that's insane. You know, I don't want that. I don't want Eric Ten Hag losing control of recruitment. I don't want some guy coming in and playing a football manager and, and foisting players on Ten Hag and, you know, will lose her identity at that point. There are certain things that are very, very important to United's identity. One of them is the progression of young players from the academy. That route has to always be available. It always ha there always has to be a way for young players to get into the first team if they're good enough. I love that at United. I love that United do that. I love that, that our football club has had a long tradition of doing that. I don't want that to go away. So you look at City and PSG as examples of state-owned football clubs and how nourishing is it for their fans. Well, PSG fans ratted at the end of last season. Now they won the league. Look at how many times PSG won the league prior to being taken over. You would imagine that would be a successful season, but of course this was over what happened in the Champions League. City, after winning the league, couldn't fill their stadium when they first came back. So when you remove sport and merit from the equation, how nourishing is it? And I think United fans need to be cautious of this. I understand, you know, right now, Yes, would it feel amazing to go out this summer and buy five or six world-class players? How exciting would that be? You look at it uh, on the face of it, of course that's extremely tempting. Of course that's exciting. right? Of course we want that. But you need, don't need to be owned by people that are, you know, to choose my words carefully here, by people that um, aren't the most humane shall we say. But I think it's fair to look at everyone. If if we have people from Qatar that aren't tied to the ruling class, because you have to be careful, you can't just be prejudiced against somebody just because they're from Qatar, because that is prejudice, there's no question. But if an individual emerges who's not tied to the royal family or, or, or the ruling class or whatever, who's not responsible for some of the most egregious human rights abuses that we have seen, then I'm okay with that, you know, same with anyone else, if it's, maybe it's a dirty businessman, that has nothing to do with the 
and maybe there's people listening to this that thinks I'm unbelievably naive and stupid, and that's probably true. Um, I don't know enough about the geopolitics to know um, how that would work. If, if there are people that are, you know, that, that are billionaires in those countries that um, are not connected to the ruling class, I don't know. Um, but um, I think when we're sitting here scratching our heads going, we can't find an ethical billionaire to buy the football club, Maybe it tells us something about billionaires and how they accumulate wealth and how we should perhaps recalibrate society to have a better distribution of wealth so that we don't have despots, you know, hoarding all this money. Um, you know, Jim Ratcliffe has been pursued by environmentalists. Um, no question to have the type of wealth that he has, he's exploited people. No question. You know, exploited resources, exploited governments, exploited nations, exploited people. You know, uh, Elon Musk allegedly interested. I don't know anything about that, I'll be honest. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he was at the World Cup and the Super Bowl. Someone who clearly sees the value of sport and sees the relevance it has in, in uh, across the world. You know, one thing that's different about Elon Musk and other billionaires, even the guy I was sitting with yesterday at the Super Bowl, Rupert Murdoch, most billionaires buy the media to stay out of it. To make sure that uh, they can catch and kill stories about themselves, or make sure there's things that are printed that um, stroke their ego. <clears throat> Elon Musk, on the opposite, bought the media to put himself front and center. Now, depending on where you land the political spectrum, will determine whether you like him or dislike him. Um, leave that up to you. But um, Elon Musk is clearly someone that likes to be front and center of media coverage. No better way to do that than own the biggest, arguably the biggest football club in the world. Certainly one of the most famous. Um, football has a competitive balance problem. I think it's going to have to get addressed. Uh, I know lots of people recoil against the Super League, but there's going to have to be something done. In my opinion, there needs to be maybe a salary cap brought in. Um, because I think... Um, what we see, like I mentioned, with Chelsea spending more than the rest of these other countries combined is not sustainable. Um, the Champions League as an entity depends on competitive balance across the continent. Um, I was looking at some of the, the AC Milan team the other day and thinking how many of those players would get into top Premier League teams? Not many. 7-10 European Cup winner. No. Uh, you look at the Messi Juventus who are in financially. You know, City, this is one of, the, of course, the reasons why you know, it's totally unfair for City to financially dope. Uh, and I and I have my own issues with the FFP. I don't think it attacks that properly. United and Barcelona should not be compliant with the FFP. And there is no question. One of the main reasons the FFP was brought in, was brought in as a barrier to prevent, you know, football clubs being owned by wealthy benefactors that... We're, are going to push the price up of transfers, push the price up of wages, and now you see people like Daniel Levy coming out saying this is completely unsustainable, which it is. So, um, football's going to have to act, and a regulator, you know, it's kind of it's difficult because you're you're asking a, a, a British regulator to regulate against their football clubs and say we need to provide competitive balance in nations we have no fiscal interest in. I don't know if that'll get done. But I think um, governance has let fans and clubs down badly, really badly. 
you know, there's awful casualties in this. We've seen so many clubs go out of business. Um, I, I, I mean, I have a friend of mine that owns a League One club. And he told me a story about him going for a, a third choice goalkeeper at a Premier League club to get him on loan in 2018. And the guy was on 30 grand a week. And the way they wanted to structure the loan deal was you cover the wages, you can't return the player until July 1st because they want you to pay his wages up until July. And of course he would have been the biggest paid player at the football club. I think I was listening to um, Carl Anka talk about this with Laurie Whitwell on the uh, Andy Mitten on Talk of the Devils podcast, which is an exceptional podcast, by the way. I highly recommend it. Same with the Native We Stand podcast. Uh, brilliant, well-informed commentary. Um, talking about Brandon Williams, saying, uh, I apologise if I don't have this 100% correct. It was a while ago. Since it happened, wanted him. But he would have been one of the highest paid players at the club. Um, I mean, that is just in incredible. Um, so there has to be something done about this where there's proper fiscal management of football clubs brought in um, so that we don't have ownerships like the Glazers. And I don't care if you need a fan or not. This is about precedent. If you've got one owner that owns a football club in the most unethical means, unethical ways, and that is allowed to happen, then that will visit your club too. And has a high probability of visiting your club. I mean, Hicks and Gillette don't happen without the Glazers. There is no way. They looked at what the Glazers did, owned Liverpool, and ran it in their ground. You know, so that butterfly effect is real. So um, there's obviously, as I said before, lots of interested parties in United. And of course, lots of United fans' concern is about what if there's a partial ownership? Look, there's already a partial owner of Manchester United. There's already a partial investor in Manchester United, and that's the bank. If you go out and you mortgage your home, you don't own it to pay for it. So the real owners of Manchester United are the bank. You know, when you're close to a billion in debt, you don't own that football club. So when the Glazers go to the market and ask for capital, usually that happens in a couple of ways. Maybe your business wants to diversify and you want to invest in new industries, which bring new potential capital revenue, new new returns. You go to the market and say, look, we're an exceptionally well-run business. We pro we're highly profitable. We turn a profit over every year, but we want to invest in new, in new technologies and new industries. Okay, that makes sense. Um, but if you go to the market and say, look, we are destitute because of grotesque financial mismanagement because of absentee owners, because the football club quite clearly has been used for the fiscal benefit of the Glazer family. And that was, it, that was you know, the raison d'etre of, of the football club was to provide revenue to the Glazers. You don't get capital that way. People will look at you and say, well, why would I invest in that? The only way we're giving you money is if you dilute your ownership, is if we put people on the board that make different decisions is if this football club is run in a whole different way or this business is run a whole different way i don't think the glazer family want to do that you know and so i think i i obviously there's lots of briefing stuff going on i have no doubt that avram glazer and joe glazer would like to continue to own manchester united 
in a capacity that allowed them to stay on to capitalize on future revenues. No question about that. But why would anyone do that? If you're the Emir of Qatar, why would you do that? You know, I mean, because it makes it really difficult for them. Let's say they, you know, you look at Newcastle, we're going to change the color of the shirts. Now you're going to go on tour, you know, in Saudi Arabia. It makes it really difficult to do that when you still have a minority stake in a club to run it the way you want and to invest the type of money in United. If you look to at its appraised value, the type of money that you would have to invest to make a significant difference in United to the stadium, everything else, you're looking at more than 50%. You know what I mean? So I don't see any potential for that. I think it will be a full takeover, 100%. And like I said, no, there's Americans were interested in it too. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how big football is here now. Right? I had a football tournament in San Diego uh, two weeks ago. California State Cup. Thousands and thousands of kids there all over the state. And Premier League shirts by far and away dominated. I saw a lot of city shirts, a lot. <laughs> um, when I first came out here in 2001, 2002, Spotting a football shirt was like spotting an alien. Right? It was very, very rare. You almost pointed it to her like, wow, football shirt? No, they're everywhere. Everywhere. And these kids, they watch Premier League. They know their football. You know, they're modeling themselves on De Bruyne and all. Not the not Messi, everything else. These kids, not the most obvious players. Of course, video games had a big part playing that. But football has taken root here. If you go back to the NASL, they were playing in NFL stadiums, cavernous, massive stadiums. There was no foundation. There was no grassroots. Not now. Now, MLS clubs have academies. You know, Bournemouth were bought because it was cheaper to buy Bournemouth than what it was to buy an MLS team. MLS will keep expanding. This country is massive. Uh, football is here to stay. The World Cup is here in three years. Americans see tremendous value commercially otherwise in the Premier League. They're not bad people because they're Americans. And I don't say that just because I live here. Europeans are more than happy to adopt any commercial policy. I mean, Emilio Butchaguino used to work for the LA Dodgers. The reason he came out to work for the LA Dodgers was because he wanted to learn how the US marketed their sports teams so that they could adopt those principles um, in Madrid. Europeans like money too. So, you know, just because they're from a certain place doesn't make them a certain type of person. Yes, the sport and culture out here is completely different. Completely different. Right? But the type of ownership that the Glazer have of Manchester United illegal in the NFL. I think American sports are better at competitive balance. I mean their entire structure is designed so that teams don't have dynasties. You know, there are some things that we could learn from that. Um, they're much more blasé about clubs being used for personal profit. I'll accept that. But there are certain things that could be learned about uh, certain principles we could adopt that would help solve some of the problems in, in, in European football as a whole. <clears throat> so you can understand why the Americans are interested. But again, I think if I was the bet, United will end up in the hands of the Qataris, and I've been quite vocal 
I got my criticism of that uh, during the World Cup. Um, and so I, I can't be a hypocrite. Uh, I understand why fans want that. But um, some things are more important than our entertainment, lads. Lastly, I want to finish up on Mason Greenwood because this is the reason why, <clears throat> main reason why I deleted the podcast earlier. I'm not qualified to speak on Mason Greenwood. I'm just a Manchester United fan that loves a football club like you and highly susceptible to bias, highly susceptible to wrong conclusions, bad information, bad logic and saying the wrong thing. I'm probably wrong about most things in life for that reason. I have two daughters and if anyone hurt them in any capacity, I, I, I couldn't deal with it in a measured way. They're the most precious things in the world to me. The, lady, the young lady in question is the victim in this. It's up to her to forgive. It's up to her to decide the right course of action, in my opinion. Mason Greenwood's talent or his potential value is not relevant in this discussion. This is a highly sensitive topic and there will be people listening to this that have experienced abuse physically, sexually or otherwise that will be traumatised. This is absolutely not appropriate to talk about on a football podcast. So I won't be making any further commentary on this. I won't be saying anything else about it. Um, it's, you know, it's not up to me to decide what the right course of action is and it's highly inappropriate to people discuss this in my opinion who aren't qualified to talk about it and I'm one of those there's absolutely nothing I could say that would be of relevance to this discussion the topic you know so um, my thoughts are with the young lady in question and I think the whole situation is entirely tragic and um, it's it's very very difficult to talk about so that was the main reason I deleted the earlier podcast. I hope this one wasn't too difficult to listen to with me doing it by myself. <laughs> um, if not, I might do some more by myself because one of the main obstacles to recording is sometimes the schedule of my other guest. Um, but uh, maybe people don't want to listen to me waffle for 45 minutes. I don't know. Um, you know... Some things I wish I could take back, some things I wish I didn't say, some things I wish I didn't tweet. I am a deeply flawed human being like everybody else. And um, there are certain things that uh, I wish I'd never said in the past. And so this was something that I wanted to get right. And I don't know if I have, but I wanted to be careful about some of the things that I said. And there were certain things that I had said in a rant about uh, rants is Alejandro Granacho comments that were probably unfair to him um, and uh, I think that's a bit immature of me to say that um, I shouldn't have done that and uh, I was upset at the comments I've made my point clear on that and why I was upset at the comments and I'm still upset at the comments I'll be honest but I'm not above being a dickhead myself I'm not above saying the wrong thing myself I'm not above putting out stupid opinions myself 
And so um, when people are more than entitled to get upset at me for certain things I've said and, and give me grief over it, that's entirely fair. You know, certainly, you know, I'm more than happy to take the, the, the pats on the back and the plaudits whenever I get something right. So you have to take the, the good with the bad. Um, but I didn't think it was fair to allow that podcast to remain in circulation because I, I really don't feel comfortable standing behind everything that I said. So apologies to anyone that listened to that earlier. Um, that was not the best version of myself. Um, but as I said, I'm deeply flawed and I apologize to anyone um, that I offended in that podcast or for even some of my choice of words because some of them were not correct. Um, you know, nonetheless hopefully this is a better podcast uh apologize to calm if you had to listen to that unfortunately and um you know i i will definitely be better in the future thanks to all of you for downloading this podcast as always for supporting my work for for following me i really don't deserve the vast majority of followers that i have i'm extremely grateful to you for that um i i um i hope you're all well physically mentally and otherwise and uh I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thank you sincerely. Take it easy, folks.